by way of setting a proper motivation for this session, I would like to invite your attention to a sutra called Chuyantapandupa, which roughly translates to comprehensively gathering all the dhammas, or, or it would be gathering of the pure dharma, young tower, depending on where you add the qualifier. I kind of uh, like the first way of rendering it, where it has a connotation of the sutra, where all the dharmas, particularly here in this context, both the sadhavast, the sattva related dharmas all are contained and gathered in this sutra. So in this sutra, it says that just as the sutra itself may be gathering all related dharmas of a bodhisattva aspiring to attain bolivagni, likewise, in the case of the practice or the focus of the bodhisattvas, there is one thing that they can focus on, which when they succeed and manage to do so, all the rest of the dharmas that they needed on their path would be naturally present, naturally collected. And it passes. It points to that one thing by way of question, which one is that? And it says, the great compassion. If bodhisattvas do not train in any other many dharmas, but if they do train in just one, all the rest of the Buddha's dharmas, actually it actually says all the rest of the Buddha's dharmas. And now here, not Buddha's dharmas, in the sense of Buddha's teachings, all the qualities of the Buddhas, all the phenomenon, phenomenal qualities of the Buddhas will fall in that Bodhisattva's palm of his hand. And that is great compassion. So I would like you to contemplate on what great compassion is as opposed to mere compassion, just ordinary compassion, or even genuine yet limited compassions that we have, say, between a mother and a child, or the compassions that we find in the mind streams of Arahats, Shravakas, Pratik Buddhas, and Arahats in those vehicles. Try to conceptualize what great compassion be as opposed to those. What does the greatness of that compassion imply?
in what ways is its greater than the other compassions? And contemplate on how in the world is is possible for great compassion to be able to gather all the rest of the Buddha's phenomenal qualities or all the rest of the Bodhisattva's practices. Is it a mere conceptual thought or is it in real? Great compassion has such quality. In the sutras, when someone generates great compassion for the first time, his or her bodhisattva lineage, if you will, or Buddha lineage becomes activated, becomes manifest for the first time. It's like the highway, the bodhisattva highway is now open to that person. And then from that point onward, if from among all dharmas, all practices, if he or she focuses just on great compassion and follows its directions, it can rest assured that all the rest of the dharmas fall in place. Contemplate for a while how this is possible, for which one has to first begin with what great compassion is, for that what compassion is. What does it mean to have compassion for someone as opposed to mere? attachment, or any other way of afflicted connection. How can such compassion be brought to a level of great compassion? You may remember from one of the sutras that we recite every week, once every week, where it says all the dharmas of the great vehicle are contained in bodhicitta, and bodhicitta is rooted in great compassion. So cultivate bodhicitta, great, great compassion. 
is all point to the same thing in bringing the greatness, the marvel, the magic, if you will, of great compassion once we can manage to generate within us. Having contemplated on this, now try to generate a sense of great compassion. See if we could mould our mind, even for a short period, into great compassion. Which goes to all sentient beings without distinction. and wishes for them to be free from all types of sufferings, not just the suffering of pain, not just the suffering of change, but deep down the suffering, suffering of pervasive conditioning, pervasive conditioning to the bondage, afflictions and the karmas induced by them, and deeper still, Compassion that wishes all sentient beings to even be rid of the subtle traces of their afflictions, so they could realize the full awakening of their potential. Take a moment to generate. to mold our mind in this spirit, in the spirit of great compassion. With this aspiration, going to all sentient beings to be freed from their suffering. See how, from your part, this could be brought about by being grounded on great compassion and moving forward to generate bodhicitta, to become fully awakened, so that from one's own side there will be nothing lacking nothing short of, be there in the sense of compassion, concern, care, wisdom, understanding. And thus, capability Appreciating these qualities in a state of Buddhahood engendered by the cultivation of great compassion. Generate a genuine sense of aspiration 
to attain this state of full awakening, for which we all have the same potential, and resolve to make each and every moment of our precious human birth to gather merits, to make efforts, persevere in the path of the Bodhisattvas. May this session of listening, hearing, discussing be part of that. Yeah, before I go into this, I I just felt inspired by the prostration mantra that we say, Om Namo Manjushri, Namo Sushri, Namo Uttam Shri, so. Shri is glorious. Manju is smooth referring to Buddha, the glorious being with all the afflictions and negativities having been completely smoothed out and thus dwelling in a completely peaceful state of mind with all the qualities of love, compassion, etc abounding in it. And then in the case of the Buddha, in the case of the Dharma, Sushri, Shri is again glorious or marvelous. Su means goodness or good, elegant. One that has the glory of being the best, the being the main thing, the being the best, the being the goodness that we all aspire for, which will make difference. The glorious good that matters is Dharma in the ultimate. And Shri Uttama, Namo Uttama Shri. Uttam means best, here referring to the best among the assemblies, the best among the groups, the best among the companies. So, it's quite uh, amazing. Uh, from the time I moved here, oh, we s- spent comparatively uh, lots of, not lots of, but 
quite a considerable uh, amount of time in making processions. Unlike, unlike in the life of a corporate monk, Hardly gets to bend down, always have to be in the chair, walking, discussing, whatnot, right? This part has blown me away that I get to make prostrations, and that too always accompanied by this recitation, which really brings forth the qualities of the Buddha in being smooth in mind. Mind with its balance and leveled. Leveled and balanced from what? From the unwanted bumps and dents. And the Dharma. Dharma is what really matters. Dharma makes. Dharma is the king maker. <laughs> Dharma is the Buddha maker. Dharma is the Sangha maker. It's the Dharma that makes Buddha the Buddha and Sangha the Sangha. We usually make a big deal about kingmaker, but Dharma is more than that. Buddha maker, Sangha maker. That's why it is Lekpepel, the glory, or the glorious, the marvelous, or the glory of goodness. Then those who attain it, even that be the just first tip of it, first test of it, because Dharma incrementally advances into full, complete Dharma attained by Buddha. So the Sanghas who test the Dharma, the real Dharma, for the very first time, that means those who are on the path of seeing, To the extent of that particular dharma, to the extent of that particular combination of the true path and true cessation, to that extent, they have become supreme among other companies, other groups, or, or in the particularly in the sense of within the context of three jewels, when we use the term sangha. It doesn't necessarily mean community. It just can be applied to one singular person also. Whereas in Vinaya, when we speak of Sangha, then we're speaking of the requirement of four. They may or may not have, they may or may not have reached the path of seeing, but in the Vinaya context, it's four bhikshus or four bhikshunis that make Sangha. That's why usually we speak of Sangha as community, but in the context of rituals, Sangha means someone who has reached the path of seeing and beyond. That's why sometimes even Buddha is included in the Gendin control. <laughs> okay, so I just wanted to, it, it just occurred again, it, it struck me. Many times, and even tonight, when we were doing the, this, the prostration, I was saying, oh, how wonderful. My life has really flipped <laughs> in terms of what I do. 
And I really, really enjoy sitting, including feeding the deer. They have now become dear to me. <laughs> they do not run away. And I sit. One thing to get to see them, but also it's quite disturbing to see what they must be going through. What may be what may be happening in their lives, in their in their in their community, who may be missing from yesterday, who could who might miss tomorrow. There's no guarantee there, and yet they're just so hungry, and the condition is so harsh on them. And so it's the same case with the animals, including the birds. I must have seen two birds, one turkey and another grouse. Couldn't make it. And there is no formal burial for them. Nobody seems to care, even the others seem to know. They just the the rest are also just surviving. So and there's hardly any time for Dharma. So it's uh, it has been a mixed feeling while watching them and dealing with them. So it's very important for us to take our precious human rebirth seriously. It's very rare in, indeed. It's very, very rare to gain this. And this will all depend on how clear we are, how sure we are of the karmic causality, not just causality in general, but karmic causality, although they are both related. First, we may want to become very clear about causality in general, that nothing escapes causality. If that's the case, then you become very clear about then you can turn it into the inner world, the causality of inner world that's connected directly with feelings, be that a pleasant, unpleasant feelings, very much directed and guided by mind, the, the so-called mind, which is so obvious unavoidable. Yet at the same time, how much of a time we spend in dwelling on this, this very crucial element of any sentient being, what it is, we rather 
maybe not here any as much, but in the rest of the world. I mean, this is itself a very separate. It's almost like a different island or different world. When thinking of not so far distant places, just into the town, city, and whatnot, the very direction, the very focus, pursuit, aim, goal. It's very different, very limited. So for us to be different in being beneficiary to so many benefactors, genuine benefactors, we have to be different. And that difference can happen by being more in touch with the mind element with us, its qualities its capabilities, its potentials, and how we can assert more say in that realm, in that domain, than we can usually expect. So that's the reason, that, that's, that's what the topic of this chapter is about the mind and its potential. And here we are talking mainly potential in the sense of its capacity to understand, to recognize, to cognize. But associated with that is also its capacity to grow in the matter aspect, in the matter side of the path. That means in the domain of care, concern, kindness, altruism, all of those are included in the potential of the mind. That's the reason why in Buddhism we usually speak of two main abstractions in the way of fulfilling, in the way of realizing the full, full potential of the mind. Afflicted, obscuration, afflictive obscuration, and the so-called cognitive obscuration. Thus far, we have been mainly focusing on the cognitive aspect of it. What are the obstructions to the mind's cognitive aspect? And partly it has become so because of how we primarily define mind as luminous in the nature and knowing in nature. I don't remember what are the actual terms used here. Mm. A natural quality of mind is its ability to cognize objects. This quality to be aware of and to know objects is already present. So. Yes, to the quality of the ability of cognizing things. Which, and also together with that, it has this ability, it has this quality of being, being to resort to direct translation, being clear light in nature, 
because clear light can be understood at so many different levels within Buddhism, or being luminous, but more in the sense, not of a physical quality of light or etc., but more in the sense of subjective agency quality of connecting with things, of capturing things, of being reflective. And together with the reflection, or the reflective nature of it, it is capable of communicating with the object. Not so much in the chemical, mechanical sense, but more so in the, in a feeling, experiential, subjective sense which is very very unique in things, mind and related things, not present in even as sophisticated organs as brain. Because all that is happening in terms of synapses and communications are in the form of electrical and mechanical activity so far. It hasn't been as identified with any anything that we would call subjective quality of feeling, experiencing, thinking, etc. So that's the reason why I was saying that associated with this knowing nature, the mind also has this quality of feeling nature, of being em- empathetic, of, of being, em- yeah, of being empathetic, of being affected. And in that aspect, as well as in knowing aspect, the mind's potential to grow is unlimited. Unlimited in the sense there is no limit that we know of in its capacity to grow. Whereas in the case of everything physical, no matter what their capacities may be, marvelous capacities may be, there would always be a limit to it. There would always be a cap beyond which it cannot go. So that's how it's very unique, and it is. Of course, one should be open to what mind is, in terms of its relation to relation with brain and other associated things. Yet, this 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 quality of, of experiencing, feeling, sensing, knowing, planning. Though seemingly associated with brain and sector, but has not yet, yet not yet been fully understood, let alone being sure about its identity of the brain. So, 
So mind has this quality of what this sutra has extolled of great compassion. And to a certain extent we can all understand, we can all acknowledge that we are so diverse, not just in our physical capacities, appearances, etc., etc., but in terms of our capacity of our mind, we may have the same type of human mind, maybe here and there a few differences in terms of what structure, what function is greater in someone, what not, but in some terms of mind, we can see how different we can be, how someone can be far, far in their vision, in their understanding, in their knowledge, in their insight, in their capacity of caring, sensing, loving, etc. How someone could have all of them in large amount, whereas in some they can be in short supply. If at all of any if at all of any quality that is in great supply, those would be negativities. So this is also an an area for our attention to wonder how one might account for this, just looking at the brain. I may I have brought this up last time also, but I don't know if any of you remember. I remember because I brought it up. There was a movie called Lucy. Have you seen that? This corporate monk has seen. <laughs> Lucy. Yeah. Pardon? I'm really surprised. Surprised what? Not just seen that. Seen that. I can't remember where I saw that, who, who I was with. It was not, not my idea. Somebody proposed and said, you must go. This would be okay for us monks to watch. So we three, two monks and one other lay guy. All three of us went to an actual theater, bought a big popcorn. <laughs> I don't know what I drank, maybe water, just water. Yeah. So, uh, fast forward. <laughs> Long story short, as you say. <laughs> There, someone was, at least how I understood and how it got explained to me, and bits and bits that I gathered from there, there, someone was conceiving what it might look like if all of the neurons, brain's capacity, 
become completely activated. Nothing remains dormant, unused. So then the brain has this dark side, white, good side, all of those. So the dark side shows up, the good side shows up, all of those. That's a very different story when we speak of mind's full capacity being fulfilled. Under the weight of positivities that we cultivate, the negativities have no room to stay. Rather, they are deliberately addressed and eliminated. Eliminable they are, because they are rooted in misconception. So this part is also very essential to see how much we agree from our own experience to the statement, to the claim in the Buddhist that afflictions are all rooted in misconception. How afflictions... Yeah, His Holiness, when giving the uh, etymological meaning of Nyomong, Glacier, I was surprised when I heard it. He said, Nyomong means Nyamchungwa, weak. Prajal, uh, weak, prajal. But the, the afflictions within us are, do not seem to be any weak at all. Prajal, no, this, this, this stay put. And we have to make great efforts in challenging them, but stay, but they kind of stay put. So I was wondering, why does the etymological meaning is so, and how is it connected with affliction? It, it means that no matter how strongly it may look on the facade, in terms of its grounding, it is so weak. It's like a big structure built on marsh. It can fall any time. It's just a matter of pushing it, taking their time in pushing it. It will only fall. So likewise is the case of afflictions that is rooted in misconception, in a misunderstanding, in, a, in misconception. So that misconception has to be identified in the form of what we call what we call self-grasping, but I like Shi Yeshitabke's way of calling it Tangi Zimba. Tangi, grasping at a mistaken nature, grasping at a mistaken identity. So we have been making so much fuss about it. It's, it's because it really lies at the root of our confidence in coming out victorious against the afflictions, because afflictions are the source of problem in short term, in long term. And that is another area that we need to be very, very clear about, the afflictions. So long as afflictions are concerned, they are nothing but to be shunned. They are nothing but to be avoided. Even when we speak of Bodhisattvas taking resort to afflictions to serve others. They do so with the, with the ultimate aim of reducing the affliction. 
even when we speak in Tantra of even upping it, taking, taking a, a notch further than the Sutra, saying that the, the Vajrayana practices involve using the afflictions as using the afflictions on the path, using the afflictions as the path, on the path. There again, the idea is not because the afflictions are wonderful, just because the afflictions are troublesome, and all means should be explored in getting at it. One way of doing that is by ta- using them on path. So that that very, very path can undo them. And this is explained in, through metaphor, through analogy. I, I, I'm so mixed up. What is analogy? What is metaphor? <laughs> anyway, it is, it is conveyed through this me- analogy of, of worms, right? Worms, hmm, what do you call it? Nurtured from the wood. And that same worm which is nurtured by the wood is eating that wood away. So likewise is the case, in the case, likewise is supposed to be the uh, tantric means of employing afflictions uh, onto the path. So after all, at all given levels of Buddha's teaching, afflictions are the culprit. And from within afflictions, the root affliction is the so-called self-grasping. And it is unfounded. Unfounded in reality. That's the reason we say the base of afflictions, no matter how big a story it may be, of several layers of stories. So of course, we speak of nine, nine levels of subtleties of afflictions, of each of the afflictions, be that attachment, anger, etc. So we, we could think of them as in, 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 in the form of a structure, a skyscraper, with the ground being on the march. And it, it happened that such structures do not stay long if conditions are gathered around it in making it fall, it can, can happen. So, in the case of, so, in, in, in the case of the Buddhist practice, where the, the practice, I mean, involves in in harnessing, in actualizing and harnessing the potential of mind. But the way to do that is by employing it in two tasks. One of creating, cultivating, increasing the positive aspects of the mind, and then the other is mitigating, attacking, mitigating the negative aspects of it. So there's no way that both of them can stay together. If we see much negativities within us, that's a clear indication that positivities are lacking. 
if you see positivities uh, more, then it's just natural for the negativities to be undermined, to subside. So, even, even scientifically, we can speak of how these two forces, opposite forces, has this, what do you call that? Uh, inverse relation? Yes, inverse relation. When, when, it, when, when positivity goes up, negativity has now no other choice but to go down. Right? So in that respect, realizing the full potential of mind means full positivity, not destruction, only positivity, unlike in Lucy. <laughs> And then in terms of how is it possible for the negativities to be mitigated and whatnot, we have said that at least theoretically, uh, the understanding is all negativities, all afflictions, irrespective of whether they are negative in nature, neutral in nature, not that there can be aff afflictions which are positive, but they can be neutral afflictions and negative afflictions irrespective of whatever nature of negativity it may be, so long as it is an affliction, neutral affliction or negative affliction, it's all rooted in this unfounded concept of grasping at a totally fabricated, exaggerated, unfounded identity. So, it's on that respect, on that ground, we speak of the possibility of is liberation possible, is enlightenment possible on the basis of the mind. So then, going back to the text where we left, <laughs> Now I can rely on this. They're showing the same time. Okay. Yeah, last time we left at a calm mind can be more astute. A further difficulty in knowing objects is that some objects are so subtle, profound, or vast, or vast that the ordinary mind is unable to recognize them. To know these objects, single-pointed concentration and slash or wisdom that is freed from wrong conception is needed. Yeah, all of these positive cultivations, be that of calming the mind, taming the mind, at the Vinaya practice level, of where we work from outside in not yet quite ready to attack the mind itself and kind of handle it, but at least through our verbal and physical actions, by taming them, by giving the negative ones no opportunity to express, to vent, and thereby kind of undermining them. From that level to actually dealing with the mind and harnessing its capacity of 
single-pointed concentration to eventually growing the insight, the wisdom, etc. All of those contribute to freeing us from their respective correlated misconceptions or wrong conceptions or misunderstandings. Now it, the text goes on to say, another type of obstruction is subtle defilements on the mind that produce false appearances. I suppose Venerable here is referring to the subtle pakshas, maybe, on the, of the mind that produce false appearances. Before I t deal with this, let me tackle false appearances, share something about false appearances. False appearances include all of our afflictions, including some of our positive mental states also, since they are also until we reach the path of seeing, they can also be invaded by, permeated by at least neutral affliction, like self-grasping, self-centeredness, etc. And even grasping at permanence, grasping at unfounded purity, grasping at unfounded notion of selfhood, all of them are neutral in nature, yet afflicted. So they all have an element of false appearance. But in dealing with them, we have to deal with them differently. In the commentary on Shantideva's text, in the, tenth, in the ninth chapter on wisdom, Gyasabje, Gyasab Dharma Rinchen digresses a little bit from directly commenting on the topic and takes time in explaining different types of false appearances and different types of tulpa, different types of mistaken mind and different ways of dealing with it in terms of what works. He gives the example first, he starts with the example first of the visual sense consciousness which is mistaken. That of visual, visual sense consciousness that sees that sees uh, pardon? That sees witches, floaters. We, I'm still not so sure whether that is actually witches, uh, floaters, or are we really speaking of the same thing or not? But nonetheless, if we use the term witches, floaters, we are talking of what appears. But rabrib is more of a condition that creates it. So it is a, it is a physical, yes, a physical condition. I think physical condition, a kind of a sickness, kind of a weakness. 
and that that that's that it could be acute and it could be serious. I don't know if you remember a story that I shared many years ago. Well, I don't need to go there. But the yeah, there was someone who really mistook that somebody else is really doing some nasty tricks on them and letting hairs keep falling onto their food. And then, yeah, and then really believe in themselves. Whereas in reality, there was none of that. It was their condition of rabrip. Rabrip, their condition of rabrip. Rabrip is a Tibetan term alluding to a physical condition by which the sight of such uh, hair-like things falling would be very acute. But the ones that we see are not that problematic. We just don't give them a damn. <laughs> we just let, let them be and they just come and go. Some have this some have this idea that maybe it could be the neurons uh, or the mm, uh, nerve receptors on the retina and whatnot that we may be seeing. Sometimes people say that. Anyway, people have different theories, but uh, here it is referring to a, an acute condition where uh, such sight can be very problematic. But the vitreous floaters that we see is only a symptom of having or carrying that condition within us. So he's saying that that appearance, even if the person himself or herself knows that it is mistaken, there's no such thing, merely knowing that wouldn't cure that. Aha, I got you, you're wrong. And it's gone. No, not like that. It still keeps coming. Because so long as that condition is not cured, it will not stop falling. No, it's not, it will not stop appearing. Even if you know for sure that it is totally complete baloney. <laughs> so there, the mistaken appearance has to be dealt with differently. Knowing is okay, very good, but that is not enough. One is to tackle the condition that's giving rise to it. Now there is another, another misappear, uh, uh, wrong, false appearance. Seeing a, seeing a coiled robe as a snake with all the conditions present, including your eyesight being not so good, the darkness has fallen a little bit, and the, the, the robe it has been, what do you call, coiled in such a manner that it actually looks like a snake. And you have heard people rumoring that there are snakes around. All of those combined kind of really perfectly works in this thing. Snake! Really snake! And so long as you have that belief, it can give rise to all of this. It's so interesting, right? There's no snake there. All there is is this, this, this misconception, and this gives rise to this real heartbeat. <laughs> all of and that's the same case with self-grasping, except it is so deep-rooted, right? But unlike self-grasping, here 
all it takes for that fear to go, all of those to settle, is just know that it is a role. That's enough. You don't need to really contemplate and meditate and so that it will go. If you, if you know, just by knowing it, that's enough. That's enough to clear that misconception, uh, misconception and it will, it will deal with it. Unless you see a similar one next time at, at, at a different place. Again, the way to deal with it is to see for yourself that it is a rope, not a snake. Now comes the mental afflictions and the mental grasp, self-grasping attitudes. There, of course, one has to start with exposing them, not buying into them, not buying into their story, right? But exposing them, knowing them to be not true. That is an unavoidable step towards dealing with it effectively. But just that is not enough. Because we are dealing with not just the notion of it, but the grasping at it. The notion is exposed. But the grasping at that is still there. And the notion of inherent existence is non-existent, like that of snake on the rope. But the grasping at it is so deep, habituated, entrenched, rooted in us, that even after knowing, even after exposing that it is mistaken, it is not that it's not going to leap away, leave you. It has grounded so much root in us. So he says, so, so Gesab just shares this and, and, and shares these different ways of appearances which have, by very nature, different ways of tackling with it, what works with them. So likewise, we have to know that the afflictions within us, together with their root, cause in the uh, self-grasping. We need to repeatedly work against them. We have to, maybe you, you know this, in the context of the path of, path of preparation, in the context of path of preparation, we speak of almost like a battle between the negative forces and positive forces. To, at the level, uh, there are four sub sub levels of the path of preparation, right? To zemo super shojo. Maybe at at these two levels, or maybe maybe let let's say at this level, and the negativities are stronger, say, disbelief and faith, right? Or you, you take any, any, any opposing qualities. The, the negativities are stronger in force, that unless one take, 
strong precautions, they can easily overwhelm, you, overwhelm its corresponding positive quality. And then in the second one, I don't remember clearly, but in the second one, there is a in in what you call incremental in what you call development on the part of the positivity, so that now the the balance shifts. That at the second at the peak level, although it is called peak, it is not yet the peak. It's the second, right, right? <laughs> not the peak or peak, but the second, second peak. Okay, so don't mistake, don't take the words too seriously. Peak <laughs> at the peak level, maybe say faith, unfaith, uh, share up wisdom, ignorance. Thing and zin, one-pointed concentration, distraction, they may be equal, equally forceful. They may have been. And then in the super, super level, the equation shifts. Now the negativity is less and the, the positivity is greater. So that really reflects how, with our efforts rooted in interest and aspiration, which is very crucial in any of our spiritual aspiration, spiritual journey, interest and aspiration to engage in it is the first and foremost. I think that may be the reason why in many of the texts it says church is our mebala Sometimes it can be so misleading in how you translate meba. Sometimes they translate it as belief, faith, but sometimes as aspiration, what you are interested in. So interest in Dharma is the first and foremost. And with that established, then all it takes for you to grow is making, keep making efforts. So in the case of the self-grasping and other afflictions as well, merely knowing that, aha, you are wrong, you do this, I mean, merely catching them once as being mistaken, or twice as mistaken, even as mistaken, is not enough. One has to work on the basis of that exposure of their, of their wrongfulness, of their unfoundedness. On the basis of that, one has to make consistent effort in building their corresponding positive counterparts, and that's how it will shift the balance. And then eventually, working at their root cause in the form of self-affliction. That's how, long after having exposed them, it will begin to budge. It will begin to, it will begin to loosen its grip on us. Not until then. So, So, so that's what I wanted to share with regard to false appearance and in recognizing how our afflictions 
including anger, jealousy, greed, self-centeredness, whatnot, however much more we see it being unfounded, wrong, miscalculated, etc., and so constricting, etc., etc., unless and until we ourselves manage in building their corresponding positive counterparts so that we can weaken them. That's almost like facing them in the what do you call encountering them in the face and there the fight would take this in this place in this shape of falling of kind of getting above them right but then eventually it has to go down to dealing with the root of it having dealt with it in the face by building its own corresponding positive counterpart then eventually one has to take the advantage of its become weakened by that positive counterpart in then reaching to the root by re- by looking at its by finding its lifeline its lifeline not in the form of F- uh, anger say in the case of anger its lifeline is not anger its lifeline is its its mistaken grip, mistaken belief in the inherently negative nature of something, or inherently pleasant nature of something. The exaggerated, the the fabricated, or if you will, elaborated beyond reality level of whatever aspect it may be latching on to. So that needs to be then worked on. So it says, another type of obstructions is subtle defilements on the mind that produce false appearances. Here we are going even further away, further deeper from the manifest afflictions themselves, manifest self-grasping themselves, even to the subtle traces, subtle stains of them. And they are real, usually called the pakcha. They are not even manifest, say, in, in the case of affliction, in the case of a particular affliction, say, attachment. The attachment and its root is different, its seed is different than its pakcha, in this, in this particular sense of a subtle stain, subtle defilement. So that's what uh, this particular paragraph is pointing to. These prevent us from attaining Buddhahood, the state of omniscient mind. So this is something uh, we have to we have to make sense, not merely taking it uh, by its face value but really making sense, making a connection. Because here we are zooming in from among so many things that could be possible. We're zooming in to the the afflictions, stains, the stains, subtle stains, which by themselves have no capacity to give rise to the afflictions, the respective afflictions themselves. Nonetheless, strong enough to keep us from knowing everything. 
How in the world could that be? So long as we have that trace and not anymore the seeds of the afflictions, including that of self-grasping itself, it will still it will still make us it will still retain the appearance of inherent existence to our mentality. Though we know we will not be anymore grasping at it and giving rise to any manifest mind that grasps at it that gives uh, what you call accreditation to the to the appearance. But nonetheless that appearance itself is un, un uh, unshakable. It cannot be just gotten rid of. Unless and until we reach full awakening, or we are in our states of complete one-pointed immersion on emptiness, which we usually call the state of equipoise. So for sentient beings, that's the only occasion when we don't even have the appearance of an inherent existence. Even when we are far away from getting rid of the roots of any afflictions, and that means getting rid of any level of self-grasping. But so long as we succeed in bringing our focus on emptiness, meditation on emptiness, to this transition from conceptual level to a non-conceptual, perceptual, direct, one-pointed, total immersion level, at least during that point of time, during that duration, not only we would have understood emptiness in its direct form, directly, but at the same time, we would not be subject to so we will not be subject to any of the appearance of the uh, inherent existence. Other than that, until we reach Buddhahood, we cannot get rid of that. So that's what it is pointing out. To prevent, these prevent us from attaining Buddhahood, the state of omniscient mind. So, although it is directly connecting to Buddha's omniscient mind, Buddha's knowledge aspect, Buddha's wisdom, understanding, expect. Together with it, it is also connected with the other qualities, the supportive qualities that are required in the form of very strong bodhicitta, very strong love and compassion, very strong joy, equanimity, very strong of all of the far-reaching practices. When these subtle defilements are removed, the mind will naturally perceive all phenomena. The main obstructions to omniscience are the latencies of afflictions, the subtle appearance of inherent existence that they produce, and the defilement preventing seeing the true truth simultaneously. So these are very loaded statements very loaded statements, and they need to uh, speak to us 
through our making sense of the connection of the two of the two ends of, of the two things right? of how its presence is is keeping us from attaining Buddhahood, how Buddhahood can be attained in the lack in the in the wake of dealing away with it. So the connection. I think this whole paragraph I'll push through will deal with this. Mm. After the wisdom realizing ultimate reality eliminates the afflicted obscurations, it must cleanse the cognitive obscurations from the mind. When every last defilement is removed, the mind is totally purified. And so now the question is the how of it. That's very essential. Very essential. When every last department is removed, the mind is totally purified and its excellent qualities are fully developed. I mean, there's no way but for the excellent qualities to come out with no obstacles, unlike Lucy. <laughs> Not both the negativities and positivities remain there, and then in their full awakening, one could be so destructive, so positive at the same time. None of that. Here we're talking of opposites. Right? Cultivating the positivity under the way to which they are corresponding negativities. In the case of cultivating understanding of emptiness and internalizing it, that is a sweeping, sweeping antidote to all the afflictions. So increasing that would naturally decrease the other one. And thus the full awakening, the full, full re- realization of the potential means complete abrutment of the afflictions, rendering them totally irreversible. And, and that capacity is very much inbuilt within us, in the nature of our mind itself. And that is very related with the next topic, next chapter on Buddha nature, Buddha potential. Okay. When every last defilement is removed, the mind is totally purified and its excellent qualities are fully developed. This is the state of Buddhahood in which the capacities of the mind, capabilities of the mind have no limits. Again, what do we mean by the capabilities of the mind being no limits? Has compassion reached, has compassion not reached the limit when it is in the Buddha? We have to make sense. Ours are very limited, we can all say. It's limited in terms of, in a very, very gross way, because it is, it, our compassion goes to them, not to them, it goes partly to them, fully to them, more to them, <laughs> like that, right? Not at all to them. And so we fully see limits and room for growth uh, until it goes to everyone. But what about when it has gone to everyone, it has been developed so much that now it has reached this state of full awakening. How is it not limit? It is still limitless. So how do we, what do we make sense of this? Yes, it goes to limitless sentient beings. 
it's limitless in that sense. But that has been from long time ago, even before entering into the path of the Mahayana, right? Okay. The, effectives, the effectiveness of a Buddha's activities depend not on the abilities of that Buddha, but on the receptivity of sentient beings. So it's... So, on the part of the Buddha, all of the positivities would have rem bloomed to its full potential, which means none of the negativity, none of the negativities uh, stand even the slightest chance of ever being present, let alone manifesting in him or her. Such being the case, on the part of the Buddha, there is no such thing as being short of compassion, love, wisdom, understanding, etc., etc. But for a, a Buddha to be able to benefit sentient beings, sentient beings would have to have to, would have to come up with their part of the with, with their with their share of the equation. So that's what is called receptivity. In our daily life, also, it is quite clear. It's just a matter of whether we are interested or not. If we are interested the, to the level of interest we have, to that level we understand something, we clear up something. And if we push, keep on doing it. It, it, it is just natural. Things are subject to causes and conditions. If we create the condition, not just causes and conditions, yeah, things are dependent on their Viable causes and conditions, right? Viable causes and conditions, and and thus, if we put in effort in the right direction, and we do not fall short on our part in making effort in generating interest in seeing value in them and persisting in them, of course, in a balanced way, then progress in the right direction is. As Kishishilabtakela says, it's not something in the hands of the result. You just have to come in. The result has no, no, no say, no no choice but to come up, but to come about. I think we are, we already use the time and this is the way you can avoid questions <laughs> I'll still ask if you have any questions one or two yes please I mean you could have raised your hand in the middle of in the middle of the discussion then when I didn't see hands going up I said okay I should have to go up Okay. Should I, I understand the relationship when you, when you talk about His Holiness talking about afflictions and how they are weak based huh? on that they are not standing on firm ground? Oh, yeah, yes. But I don't understand how Nyam Chung is 
the etymology of new moon? Like how does that, why, why is that the, the etymology? And, why part of that? I don't know. I mean, that's what it might literally mean. In another usage, when we use nyomong, we use it in the sense of something that gives you a hard time. And afflictions do give us hard time, unless we overpower them. They give us hard time. Some sneakingly, right? Or not. Uh, that's how we use in verb form. But in terms of the name itself, the etymology is only a share that that it means Nyam Chung. And Nyam Chung it is because it has no valid ground. It's just barely, barely hanging on there. It just happened to be not deserved by anyone. And so it has just found its, its place within us, within us, in the very core of our heart. Because we never ever shoot it away. Go away. We don't see, we, we didn't say it enough, long, strong enough. So it, it found its home in here. But if we begin by exposing it and, and, and then making efforts, it will have not, no, no, no choice but to eventually loosen up its grip. So in terms of why, I don't know. Now, Glacier, we have to look for the etymology for of Glacier and then see what it means. But His Holiness shared it in one of the teachings that I was listening to. And I was first taken aback. How could it be? That's the hardest thing to work with, work against. And how could it be Yam Chung? It seems to be very, very uh, powerful in us. But powerful only because we let it be. Otherwise, it has not even a firm grounding in reality. Any other questions? Any, any other ten questions? Maybe it's time now. We'll stop here. <laughs>